Hello and welcome to the Cocktail Hour with me, your host, Erin Folt. The Cocktail Hour is a place where we celebrate the women in business who are shaking shit up. This week, we are talking about giving your power away and how to take it back. This week, our guest is Dr. Linda Moore. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Hey, thank you. Good morning. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you. I am too. This is actually take three on the podcast because I've messed it up a couple times, which I have never done before, but I am very uh, nervous because you are very, you're huge. Well, also maybe it's because you know I'm a psychologist and I do therapy every day and you're relaxing and you know, kind of connecting to your... A little scared what you're going to pull out this podcast. Yes, like, yes. This is about you, not me today. Yes, yes. Okay. So I am very excited. So let's tell people who you are, even though they probably know who you are. So Dr. Linda Moore is a Kansas City-based psychologist, author, speaker, and management consultant. She is president of Linda L. Moore & Associates and the co-founder and former president of Centerpoint and Outpatient Counseling Center. Dr. Moore consults and speaks nationally and internationally and is known for her work with women, leadership training, executive coaching, stress management, and human relations. Dr. Moore has published a book on power, Release from Powerlessness, a Guide for Taking Charge of Your Life, and is featured in a partial video adaptation of the book, Taking Charge of Your Life. Her second book on the psychology of women is is titled, What's Wrong With Me? Maybe Not That Much. I love the title of that one. She also has a third book, Your Personal Stress Analysis, and a novel in the works. Yeah, and and the stress analysis, there's actually something about men in that, in addition to information about women. (laughs) Branching out, are you? Yes, exactly. Can we tell people what what you started to what organization in Kansas City you started? Oh, the Central Exchange. Yes. Oh, yes. That is. I awesome. was twelve. You were. Yes. I thought I thought you looked a little young. Central Exchange. Yeah. So just I don't know if you know this, but we're a corporate sponsor of Central Exchange. I'm happy to know that. Oh, That's good. good. Um, and their CEO Courtney mm-hmm. Thomas has been yes. on our podcast before, and I feel like a lot of our listeners do come from the Central Exchange. Wonderful. So I think this is this is going to be huge for them. Okay, so let's just start from the beginning. I know you've never listened to our podcast, so I'm just going to tell you one of the things that people find the most interesting about our podcast is. Honestly, how did you get to where you are? So let's just start from the beginning, right? Because one of the, the most awesome things about our podcast is a lot of women, what I found where I was before I started this business is people look at you. I think even now I told you, you're so fancy. How do I become like you when we first met, right? Because I can't hold my I heard that, <laughs> yes. I, I had a little trouble identifying with it, but I heard it, yes. And by fancy, I mean, I mean you've, got a, you've got a resume. You've got a good resume. You've got a good presence. You are the woman that people put on the shelf like goals, right? Okay, that's So let's lovely. tell people where you come from. So Because I think one of the things that is most awesome about this, uh, this podcast is just the real authenticity of it and how people see maybe just a part of themselves in mm-hmm. you. And so let's just start. So you grew up in Kansas City? No, I grew up in a town of 2,500 people in northeast Missouri. Okay. Like five miles from the Iowa line, possibly, maybe 12, and maybe an hour from Illinois. We used to call it the greater tri-state area. Okay. But my brother calls it the original location of the Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) Is he still there? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, no. No, no. Everybody got out? Everybody got out. And that's really the way to answer the question. I mean, I love growing up in small town Missouri. Went to college in Missouri. I graduated. I worked for a while for the federal government the summer out of college. And then I ran away from home to the East Coast where I knew not one single solitary person. Okay. Except who interviewed me for a job. So you moved there for work? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yes. And what sort of, okay, what sort of work, let's start at college. What did you go to college to do? 
I went to college to become an English teacher, oh, okay. which is what I ended up going out to the East Coast to do, That's teaching right. school in a private girls' boarding school. Oh, wow. What part of the <clears throat> East Coast? Stanton, Virginia, very close to UVA, where I ended up going to get my doctorate at the University okay. of Virginia. But the discovery was multiple, well, or twofold, perhaps. One, when you, you run away from home at that point in life where no one knows you, you're what I call psychologically role-free. In other words, you can't be identified as someone's kid or yeah. uh, friend or you know, mentee. You are totally on your own. Mm -hmm. So it's like having a blank slate and really beginning to explore on my own who I was and what I wanted to do. And one of the first things I discovered was I hated teaching English. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. So I thought, if one more kid tells me I hate Shakespeare, I will hurt myself. <laughs> so I have to get out of this profession. Is it because you loved Shakespeare and that yes. type of stuff that you thought you'd like teaching it? Yes, okay. I guess. Yes. Figure that one out. Mm -hmm. So um, I had established residency by being in Virginia for a year. I applied to a lot of graduate schools and got accepted, but UVA offered to pay me to go to graduate oh, school. Wow. So I was at UVA for four and a half, almost five years, getting my doctorate. Okay, so I'm going to back up a little bit. So you liked you liked English, that's why you thought you would teach <clears throat> it, but you also grew up in small town Missouri, is mm -hmm. how you said it. I think mm -hmm. I always say Missouri. Yes. Um, is that just, do you, looking back, do you think that you just thought teaching was one of the only options you had? Or did you know how big of options you had as a woman in small town, Missouri? I think that growing up in a small town where you're reinforced and uh, given a lot of opportunity does make you think broadly. Yeah. Okay. So I actually originally started out thinking I would be a retail fashion buyer because I did some modeling in high school. Oh. But I wasn't very good in accounting, so I thought that <laughs> that's not going to minor minor flaw. So no, I had a lot of thoughts, and I think what I really wanted to be, if I had been honest with myself, was. Uh, a physical education teacher because I'd been an athlete all my life. Yeah. And I think my parents convinced me that only girls who cannot succeed in other fields would major in physical education, so you can't do that. But I think if I had pursued that yeah. with any degree of seriousness, then I would have turned into doing, you know, psychological coaching and athletics later on. So Oh wow. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on your parents doing that? Do you think that they made the right decision encouraging you, or? Well, that's a deep question, Erin. Let's see. Um, I think they were always so supportive of whatever I did yeah. or thought I wanted to do, with the exception of that, um, that um, I, I just took their advice. I thought they were probably absolutely accurate. I wonder if that's why that one sticks out, right? Because they were so supportive of everything else. Perhaps. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to do, when I was a sophomore, when we had like one of those career days, yeah. I talked to waves, you know, in the Navy, women waves. Oh. Loved the uniforms, told my parents <laughs> at dinner I thought I would join the waves, and I thought my father, who'd been in the Navy in World War II, was going to come out of his chair. He said, oh. no, you're not. <laughs> That's off the table. We're That's not even talking table. about it. So PE, waves, those were yeah. both off the table, yeah. Okay, let's get back to you moved to Virginia. <clears throat> so I find this fascinating. So you moved to Virginia. I did the same thing. I moved to Dallas, and there's no remnants of who you leave behind. Nope. You moved there. I don't think that's still the case for the 20-year-olds 
an 18, 20 to 20. Well, you can't go anywhere without people. Can't go anywhere without the remnants coming with you. So what do you think, as a psychologist, how do you think that move would have gone if you were 22 moving now with things like social media and your online presence and... I think it would be totally different. Yeah. And I think psychologically that's extremely important for young people to look at. Like, who am I and how do I identify myself in my own lane without being impacted by how I'm perceived or how, you know, millions of people, if I'm that, that much of an online presence, yeah. how I'm perceived. I think it's confusing. Yeah. No, I I mean, I don't think I've ever really looked at it as when I moved to Texas, I kind of came up with this new person, but I did, right? Yep. Now, Dallas is Kansas City Part 2, so Mm -hmm. there was enough people over time to be like, but you're also this person, but um, moving to East Coast, so you knew nobody there? Nope. Okay. And then how long were you out there? I ended up being on the coast for a total of 11 years. I moved to Boston for a while to work for a consulting firm, then moved back to Virginia for probably... Uh, the job that shaped me more than anything I did, I became the only woman faculty on the Federal Executive Institute, at the Federal Executive Institute, which was in Charlottesville, and it was a retreat center at the time for the super grades in the federal government. Oh, wow. So for eight weeks, people who ran the major agencies or were second or third in command came to the institute kicking and screaming, I might add, uh, to be gone for that amount of time. They went back and forth on weekends. And um, I was the only woman on the faculty. Uh, Men were on sabbaticals from universities from all over the country. And so I kind of learned to fight bears. It was me and mostly men. And classes had 70 people in them. And almost all of the time, there would be a max of two women in a class of 70 because there weren't women at that level. Yeah. So that's where I got interested in power, actually. Yeah. Because I was mistreated by very well-educated people. The women in the government were not promoted to those levels. And when they came to the Institute, because they were GS 15s, 16s, 17s, um, sometimes they were just, they were treated so badly and not included in meetings. And uh, the men just sort of saw them as secretaries. Were the men mostly white mm-hmm. men? Okay. Although there was an effort to have a good minority representation, and so if we had any shift at all, it was with uh, black males. And so were black males invited to the meetings and women still oh, yeah. weren't? Okay. Yeah. So I was wondering how the pecking order, I guess, kind of went in there. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> did you know going into the job it was going to be like that? Did you know that you were f- had fighting that a, battle? Had not a clue. Oh, really? No. Okay. Not a clue. So when you realized what you were up against, what was the mindset? Well, I was pretty pissed off, actually. (laughs) It was so shocking. And in fact, at that time, it wasn't illegal to ask annoying questions. So I was being interviewed for the job by uh, a PhD from the University of Virginia. He was um, a foreign affairs uh, faculty member. And I had a significant other at Oxford, and I had been to London two or three times. And he said to me, well, Dr. Moore, I see you have been to London several times because you have a relationship there. And I said, yes. He said, let's just imagine that you're teaching a class on leadership to these super grades in the federal government, and you decide you miss him, and you just decide to leave and go see him in the middle of your seminar. What? 
And I said, <laughs> I won't tell you what I said. I said, pardon me? <laughs> Not that nicely. And he was dead stone cold serious. And he, there was nothing I could do except be offended yeah. and talk back. But that was the way people talked. That is so crazy. I know. You could sue him today. Yeah. Absolutely. He wouldn't be working there, would he? Exactly. No. So how long were you there? Three years. Three years. Mm -hmm. And then why did you decide to leave? Um, That was kind of complicated. Um, I had always wanted to be a combination of a faculty member and administrator in a university. But I had priced myself out of the university market okay. by then. And so, so it didn't really have to do with, with trying to fight for your position. It was more. No, it was like it's time to make a decision. Okay. And I had several execs who became good friends of mine who said, you know, if you stay much longer, you'll never go to a university because it will be too expensive to make the shift and the change. Okay. So. So where'd you go from there? I came out here. That's when you moved uh-huh. to Kansas City. Uh-huh. So what did that move look like? Okay, so first of all, how did you like living in Boston? Except for the snow, I loved it. <laughs> it was so, so deep and so cold. Uh, I fortunately lived within walking distance. I lived on Commonwealth Avenue. My offices were on Boylston, and I could get rid of my car and walk. Yeah. But um, it's beautiful when it's not freezing. I lived there for one month, one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you must have been motivated to get it out. It was winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, for me, I went from Kansas City to Dallas to Boston. Ah. So it was in Dallas. People are, I don't know how much time you've spent there, but they're overly friendly, I mm-hmm. feel like, in Boston I think there was just a faster pace yeah, of life. For sure. And so I just kept getting my feelings hurt, to be really honest. Uh, right? And so that whole, e- it's East Coast as East Coast um, gets. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I can only imagine not only being the only woman or one of two women in the room versus also being in the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Did that play into that, do you think, at all? Oh, I just think it's so complicated. And it gets to the whole issue about power. You know, when you look at any any system, and when I say systems, I mean a structure from the family to the church to the university to the federal government to the corporate structure, any, any organization you look at. If you look at the structure and the power um, distribution in any organization, women as a group are defined as powerless people. That does not mean you are powerless. It doesn't mean I am. But as a group, we are seen as powerless people. You still think that? Oh, I sure do. Okay. I'm just trying to make sure you're talking about it. It's one of the things that's important about what's going on in Congress right now with this big shift in numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, People don't know quite what to do. And I just saw on the news last night uh, some coverage of women being the majority in the Nevada, in the the state of Nevada legislature. Oh, wow. It's phenomenal. It's the only time it's ever happened anywhere. Yeah. And so there are lots of responses that people are struggling with. I don't know how to do this. So if you said men typically grow up with a limited set of templates for us. We're mothers, we're daughters, we're sisters, we're secretaries, we're wives, we're mothers, we are assistants, but we aren't equals in the minds of most men. We have these very defined roles. And lots of times that's the way people relate to us. Men relate to us. And other women sometimes relate to us. Yeah. Oh, we'll get into it in a minute about mine, (laughs) about my stuff. Um, Okay. So 
when you are going and taking these jobs, even before you moved here, what are are the majority of your friends doing that, being the mother and the wife, the stay-at-home wife role? Or? No. I, okay. I had, the people I grew up with for sure were, but yeah. not the women that I hung You were surrounding with. yourself yeah, with strong women. The, yeah, on the coast. Okay. And everything was very different, and you just felt normal. You were doing yeah. what was normal. And we were involved in the start of the women's movement on the UVA campus. Awesome. And uh, it was an interesting time. The new left had formed. Um, and so there were, even on a conservative campus like UVA, there were lots of demonstrations and oh, wow. things going on. And, and what do your parents think about that while you're involved in that? Are they supportive of that? I think they were mixed. I think they, they thought that it might be time for me to quit all this and get married and have babies, mm-hmm. but they never really voiced it that explicitly. Is that what your mom did? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I think that they got nervous. And my mother, though, both my parents had great senses of humor. And so they used to make jokes. If I happened to be home visiting and we were out for dinner, my mother would say, Linda has decided to have degrees instead of children. (laughs) Things like that. So at least least she could amuse herself with that. So, And... um, it's like the the ability to be direct and say we're concerned about you um, was not part of the way they functioned or operated. They were just supportive. Yeah. Well, that's cool though. And a little disappointed maybe <laughs> once in a while they did not have I grandchildren. Careful. <laughs> what? So you never ended up having no. kids? Did no. you ever get married? Twice. Twice. Are you currently married? No. No. Okay. Listen, I just got married. I'm 39. Like, just got married. And just got married. Like, um, one month ago. Yeah. Well, so, congratulations. It took me a long time. But I found the the one guy that does likes to do the cooking and the cleaning and the that. that. See, that yeah. would be really... I, I don't cook. Yeah. Never have. My mother didn't cook. Oh, she didn't? Well, she cooked. She uh, sort of... It wasn't great. My brother has a... Has, has a, has a fun challenge. Let's see if we can name five things that we agree on that mother cooked that we thought were edible. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's kind of how I cook. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of what is different in where I'm at and where I get to be at is that guys are a little bit more, and we can get into the, the details of this after we figure out why you moved to Kansas City and stuff, but guys are a little bit more... I know quite a few women that are kind of the same level as me. They're running companies or they're high up in their company and that have found men like my husband. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are more guys willing to come out and say, hey, I'm okay playing the supporting role than ever before. And I see that happening, yes. So my husband grew up with three older sisters and a mm-hmm. mom and a stepmom. So mm-hmm. he's good at being quiet and letting me run the show. <laughs> and I love it. And I adore it. Um, okay, so you moved to Kansas City for a job? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Were you looking to get back here to the Midwest? Well, yes. I had met someone who okay. who lived out here who'd been on the faculty, you know, with me, but my family was here. Yeah. And so there was a lot of pull, you know, to come back. And I had several job offers in different parts of the country, but this offered the most of a configuration of what I was looking for. I had a job offer that was partially administration and partially faculty, and that was that was unusual to find. And where did you go? That what? What's at UMKC? Oh, that was it at UMKC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And then how long were you there? About seven, eight years. Quite a while, right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. I remember that. Is that while you were there? Is that when you started Central Exchange? 
that got started in the 70s. So that was probably right on the tail end of my being at the university, yeah. Okay, so tell me what it was. So were you having the same when you get to this university? Are you having some of the same struggles you had in the East Coast? Absolutely. Okay. In an interesting way, one of the most <laughs> intriguing things, when I got married, I decided I wasn't going to change my name. Did you get married to the guy that was back here? Yeah. Okay. So it had never occurred to me to change my name, and the university had trouble with that. The university? The what uni- about your husband? He didn't care. He didn't care. Well, okay. he, he actually acted like he didn't care. I think it probably bothered him, and one of my mother's favorite lines was, whether you think it does or not, it probably bothers him a lot. That what was did it. your parents think? Well, my mother said because she was going to write a little article for the lo- local newspaper on the fact that I was getting married. And so I said, just make sure you put Linda Elmore in there, because I'm not changing my name. And her first reaction was, I might have known you would do something like this. That was her first reaction. <laughs> so I find this really interesting. So I just didn't change my name. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a couple drinks after the wedding, and I changed on Facebook more or less just to make my husband's family happy. Very small town, Missouri. Mm-hmm. But I didn't legally change it. It's not changed um, under my business persona. And you do know that you have to not write his name on any document, any legal document. If you write your first and his last oh, name. Oh, I haven't done anything. That. Okay. No. Because that, that blows it all out of the water. <laughs> no, I didn't know that, but I haven't done that. And that's the only this thing. This conversation we had right when we got engaged. I was like, I'm 39. I've been with this name for a long time. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to stick with it. And he was totally cool with it. Um, Bryce, who works here, I don't think you've had a chance to meet Bryce yet. Um, Bryce is part of the LGBTQ community, though. Uh-huh. So he had he said that he came in this weekend. And he's like, I thought about you this weekend. I go, why? He goes, huge blow up at my house. And I was like, why? He's like, we had a couple a couple groups of friends in from out of town and changing last names. They were discussing changing last names because one couple's about to get married or something. And one couple said, no, she's not going to change her last name. The other couple said, tradition it's honoring your husband they he said i kind of try to tiptoe out of it mm-hmm. it's like then they looked at me and said what's your what's your uh, mm-hmm. response bryce bryce is like don't even pull me in because it gets real confusing when you're talking about me getting married like what do you do sure. do you hyphenate do you, sure. you know he's like i'm not the i'm not the person for this conversation he's like he's like so the only thing i had to go to was you decided not to do it for you but i just thought it was good for people but for me it wasn't nobody blinked at it good. right but i can't imagine in the 70s people were People were probably not as open to that. And they were sometimes nasty. I would be in some social setting with faculty members, a university function, and I would introduce myself. And a couple of my colleagues on the faculty said that's not her real name. What? Yeah. And how would you respond? I would just say, you're not listening clearly, and you have no right. I mean, I, I didn't have the good grace to get the person out of the hole he had usually dug yeah. for himself. I just good. was annoying. <laughs> no, that's good, though. Okay, so you're in Kansas City. You're dealing with that. Like, what does that hold? You're seven, eight years. Does it get better? Do you feel like it gets better with the women movement that's going on at that point? So much was happening. Um, the idea of the Central Exchange was revolutionary for us at that point yeah. in time. And um, so when my friend Kay Barnes and I were asked to join that group and participate, there were only two or three women at the time. So we made five and then seven and then 10 and then 12. And um, 
it was fascinating because we were trying to do enough research to understand what women in the community wanted. We did some market surveys and just to see, what are you looking for? Yeah. And this is how long ago this was in terms of what women's realities were like. One of the primary things women wanted to be able to do would be to bring a male coworker or boss to lunch and not have to have an issue about the check because if you didn't belong to the central exchange, you could not buy lunch there. A member had to sign for it. Oh. So it took all this pressure off. Yeah. And when you said that was an issue, yeah. yes, it was. <laughs> and it was a big issue. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. Um, so what did, I guess, what did that kind of look like, and how did that grow to what it is today, I guess? Yeah. Have well, you been recently? No. Okay. No. I My schedule is so crazy, yeah. it's hard to get down there for lunch, and, you know, so once in a while I would go for an evening event. Yeah. There was a, a panel of women mayors recently, and I went for that, so. Even just these past two and a half years, I think it's, stuff has changed so much in our culture, just even these past two years they've had a huge spike yeah too and who's going to yeah in attendance so what did it look like back then um it was a blend of professional women and women from the volunteer community was it all white women i would say with the exception of um two african-american women absolutely early on okay. two or three <laughs> yeah okay because um, now you walk in and it's and i think it had that perception for a long time until about two years ago. And now you walk in, it's a pretty diverse group. I agree, and I yeah. think that's good. Yeah, it's been awesome to watch it. Um, so what was the goals? Like, when you guys are sitting down, and I understand you want to meet with, my imagination is that we all want to meet with like-minded women, right? What are the goals of Central Exchange when you're starting it? And how did that help your career and the path you were trying to do Professionally. Well, everyone seemed to know that they needed networking mm -hmm. and they needed an opportunity, but people also wanted a place. There were other good women's organizations in Kansas City. You might have heard of Dimensions Unlimited, which was very, very high-functioning when I first moved here. But they moved around to different locations, like restaurants and meeting places, and they, had a, a, they did good programming. But there was no permanent space, and so we discovered in our survey that women wanted a location and a place to go to call their own. They couldn't join the Kansas City Club, so. <laughs> you know we're having our Junior League Gala there this, this year. Is a good and it is very kind of like a whole 360 moment. Yeah. Because that was a place that, so for our listeners, only men could go to tell just about a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's ago. Been, been very recent. Yeah. yeah. So people just wanted to be able to network, to talk to other women, to problem solve, and to learn. I mean, there was a huge emphasis on education and what kinds of issues we brought to the table, speakers, panels. And for years, um, Kay and I started a, a program uh, called The Leading Edge, and it went on for usually about eight weeks, and women signed up, usually about 20 women max. And so we did in-depth leadership training. And um, we did that for, oh gosh, many years. I think I haven't, I started doing it by myself when Kay got busier with elected office. Um, but I haven't done it for quite a few years, but it, I, I think have, they're still doing it though, right? Well, not that one. They Some have, sort of they have emerging leaders now. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it was the focus that many people wanted. I want to learn, I want to network, I want to connect, I want to understand 
what keeps me from moving in the direction that I want to move in my organization. So it was pretty, even though there were women from the volunteer community, it was pretty work-oriented in, in my experience anyway, yes. And what did, um, was there any male pushback at all during that? I don't recall any even minor kerfuffles. I mean, yeah. I, nothing, no. I mean, we were trying to raise money, and so that was an issue, yeah. but... <laughs> yeah. doing, and were you guys at the space they are now? Or was there a different space? No, we had multiple little different spaces. The oh, first cool. place we had, because we were such a baby organization, Adele Hall managed to negotiate a restaurant space at Crown Center for us. Oh, cool. And so we had a little tiny office in the back, and we served lunch. And so that was the opportunity, you know, for people to come and get together. And gosh, let me see if I can even remember. We went from there to a space in a hotel... God, my brain. That's been a long time ago. I think those, I think those, if anybody's listening and can correct this historically, there was, there were two locations before we went to um, the current location. The old firehouse yeah. up there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so af- what did you do after UMKC? Um, I had always had a small private practice, uh, just a few people that I saw on my own. And so I started my private practice when I left UMKC. That's really the reason that I left. And that's what you've been doing since. Yeah. And then I moved from having a small private practice and doing a lot of consulting. I've always done a lot of speaking and consulting. Uh, I went to a couple of colleagues, Kay again, and another good friend who was a financial planner and said, here's what I want to start. I want to start this clinic. And so the three of us became business partners and started CenterPoint. Wow. And how long has CenterPoint been around? Well, it hasn't been in its in that form for quite a few years, probably over 15. Okay. Maybe longer. My What year did you start it? Oh, God, that's a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> well, because three women going into business together, I wonder what that yes. looks like on the landscape of where we're dealing with the women's movement and stuff like that. We could look in the introduction of my, okay. of my first book, because I'm sure it has. I have all three but books. But it was in the 80s. Okay, in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. So when do you, okay, you start doing the power of, your real message, I've seen you speak, that's where we met, is you gave away your power and you're taking it back. And I'm going to be really blunt with you, right? Sure. You know how you said every now and then, you said something like there's just somebody that did doesn't do that? I'm, I believe that that's more me. And I don't know why I've always been like that, but I've always said to my friends, like, um, why do you care? Just go ask. What are, you know what I mean? Like, yes. just say no if you want to say no. Say yes if you want to say yes. Um, but I think that most of my friends are people that say yes to make people happy. Mm-hmm. They they do things to, you know, even come Thanksgiving, they're baking pies after they've done their business all day. They're running mm-hmm. their, you know, see that's companies. why it's good that we don't know how to bake pies. You don't have <laughs> to worry asked. about no. Who would who would ask me to bake a pie? <laughs> um, so I've I've always been like that with women. Um, I've always been the one to be like, just go do what you want, right? So where do you see? I think where this starts in a lot of people's patterns. Is it like from childhood? Truly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The dynamic is put in place in childhood. And then sometimes there is a correction because of something that that goes on with a a wonderful teacher or something like that. My shift in energy had to do with being in athletics. It totally altered my horizon and my view of things, you know, because... 
you had to be kind of rough and mean. So when did you start, I guess, putting that message out there, being more verbal about that message? You mean in terms of speaking and writing? Speaking, writing, telling people, right? Like, was that when you were going through all of this stuff with all the men saying the nasty things and doing that? Were you putting that message out to people? Yes. Yes. When I was at the Federal Executive Institute, that that is what kind of revolutionized me. And also UVA, because (laughs) when I went to the University of Virginia, I did not know women were not legally admitted to the undergraduate school. There were women graduate students. There were women in nursing school. So when I had been there visiting, I saw women all the time. There were no, you, if you were a woman and you applied to undergraduate school at UVA, until 1970, you were turned down. You could not legally oh, attend God. UVA. I was so overwhelmed to learn that information when I had already started graduate school. And that how dumb can you be? There are women wandering around here. But um, in 1970, when I was leaving, uh, four women applied to the University of Virginia, knowing they would be turned down, and sued the university, and it opened it up. Oh, wow. It wasn't until 1970 that women could go to undergraduate school at UVA. That's so crazy. So it's so crazy for me to think. So I am 39, so I'm not in my 20s, right? So, But it's so crazy because you hear these stories, but they seem like they were so far. Like ancient history. Yeah, in history. Exactly. And they really aren't when you put them into your no, numbers, right? when you put right? them into that context. I was born in the 70s. Yeah. So, like, that, okay, so, but you're way ahead of your time of, of preaching this message, right? Well, I kind of think so, yes. You I got were. in some trouble. Okay, that's where I was going with this. So, what was people's reactions? Tell me about your trouble, because I think people are now, like, in the past five years, latching mm-hmm. on hard, but mm-hmm. before that, nobody's No, preaching. just a negative response, just... Yeah, you know, and and efforts to, I would say, treat me with disrespect, um, and you might say in quotes, like a woman uh, that I didn't really understand. Like when I was at the institute, and again, it's very important to understand contextually that these were well-educated, well-positioned men in the federal yeah. government. So at the end of every day, there would be a cocktail hour before dinner and then usually some kind of presentation at night. And so this lovely man came up to me at the cocktail hour and said, Linda, I want to tell you something. It's going to upset you a great deal, but I want to tell you something. There is a pool, you know, where you you put money in. Um, And somebody's going to come up and touch your back because the question is, does she or does she not wear a bra? And I said, you have to be effing kidding me he said no and so there's a there's a bet going that you don't wear a bra and so somebody will come up and rub the back of your back to see if there's a bra strap that's what that's what it was like how did you react well i i i was kind to him because he was sharing information yes exactly he thought that was terrible um I just avoided them. I mean, every time somebody would come up and I knew what the issue was, I would turn around and wow. and keep it from happening. Can you imagine that stuff today? No. No. I mean, and people said just awful, disgusting things. I actually, I can't imagine people saying things like that today. Well, just not, yeah. Just not with the frequency and not with that same kind of rancor and intention to diminish. I mean, there's there's like an intent to put down. Yeah. And it's it's ugly and it's sad and 
So when do you feel like this shift started happening? Well. Because you said that you still see women as being underestimated. And I, I, I don't disagree with that. But I do think, let me tell you, I was listening to a podcast right before this. And uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, I, have you ever heard him? Okay. Um, he's a very outspoken, um, he owns a very outspoken marketing guy, media guy. He owns a media company, about 800 employees in New York. Um, moved here when he was a baby as an immigrant from immigrant parents. Um, but I totally agree with what he said on his podcast. He said that he thinks that there's a shift overall. So it's not necessarily mm-hmm. a minority movement. It's not necessarily a women's movement, but it's more of a a movement of people that are really taking the things that we have now, the internet, the social sites, mm-hmm. stuff like that, taking advantage of that are people that are more disadvantaged. It's more of a disadvantaged movement where people okay. are latching on to more disadvantaged, whether that be minority, whether that be woman, women. Um, and those are the people that are really making headway in companies um, because kind of the stereotypical males that have done it for so long, they're still doing it the old way and they're not adapting to the new way. So his thought process is 10 to 15 years. That's going to be such old news. Those guys have worked themselves out of okay. the old way. So, so he's suggesting the power base is shifting. Yes. And that's huge. Yes. And that might be the thing that makes a real difference in the way systems operate. Yeah. So there's just so much work to be done. So it's not just our organizations. It's the church. Yeah. I mean, I just read that Catholic nuns have been being abused by Catholic yeah, priests. I I, it's like, now, why would I not have gone there? Why would I not have thought that happened? Yeah. That's a system that's sick as well. So I'm going to tell you why I don't think you would have gone there. Because I think, without it ever being said, that it's been a cultural thing that a lot of times we think, yes, there's good priests, and yes, there's priests that didn't want to come out of the closet when they mm-hmm. couldn't. I think that's why you wouldn't have gone there. Okay. Possibly. Because I think a lot of people, I mean, I have an uncle who's a priest. I'm just going to tell you that was everybody's assumption is ah. you didn't want to come out to the family as being <clears> in the closet. And this is, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I remember as a little kid, my parents and not necessarily my parents, but family members speaking mm-hmm. of that. And, um, but I think that that is something some, somehow culturally we've identified priests as. And I think part of that comes with the boy stuff. Sure. You know, but I think that's why you wouldn't have gone there. That's my opinion. Well, it's probably accurate. And so what I'm what I'm thinking is that while systems as they have been historically defined are pretty static, yeah. there's enough activity going on outside of those traditional settings or traditional systems under the surface, around the surface, in the middle of, that there is going to be hopefully a shift. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're saying, correct? Yeah. That well, I just, I'm wondering what, because you said you really still see it in this pecking order, right? Yep. And I guess percentage-wise, like, obviously it's not the same pecking order as when you were going through it at the beginning, right? No. So it has shifted, but how much of a shift do you think it has? And what are your thoughts on what you've watched over the, I mean, what you have on your side is history of watching it, of years and years and years. So here's the a difference. There's There's the dynamic that has not altered. It's just how frequently do people run into it and is there an entire category of younger men and women who are not playing by those same rules and I don't think we know the answer to that yet in terms of how that will look or how it turns out or what the impact is my hope is we're like pushing hard enough against traditional systems that the definitions that have 
typically been attached to you or to any men we know not only don't work anymore, they're stressful for people. It's hard on people to, yeah. to stay in those roles and to understand why I feel horrible. Uh, why it's and, important. Yeah, you know, what's going on. Like, and I don't want to get into politics, but um, like when Hillary Clinton runs, it's yes. a whole different, you know, kind of conversation around her running versus... Let's just say Donald Trump versus him running, right? There's sure. two different conversations, and a lot of time her it comes up that she could be the first woman president, which mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to point out history, but at the same point, we're yeah. pointing out yeah. what that would mean. Well, and if, you, if you're paying attention, which I'm sure you are, the women candidates who've declared that they are running for president are already being treated differently. Yeah. So, see, that's, that's not shifting unless enough of us you know, throw such a fit about the coverage or about the way those conversations unfold that it will lessen, but I don't think so. What part of the city do you live in? Brookside Plaza. Okay. Did you, oh, so you're you're on the Missouri side. Mm-hmm. Missouri. That's how you said it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm in Shawnee, Kansas. So I found it very interesting this last election because I knew it was shifting. I knew it by my mail, by my physical mail I got in my... In my box. So I live over here in Shawnee, in like old Shawnee. So very Hispanic, very mixed, Mm -hmm. very diverse, um, mostly Hispanic though. And so my mail was coming in both English and Spanish, and it was only coming from the Democratic Party. It was not coming from the Republican Party. Very interesting. And I always look at things like it's a voting is a numbers game. Mm -hmm. Getting the 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 sponsorships and people to pay money so you can run that's the money game but the votes come down to a numbers game mm-hmm. right and so if my kids have four elementary schools within two miles from our house you know how many apartments go within two miles to have mm-hmm. four elementary schools right there's it's been all over the news that shawnee has stuffed a ton of apartments and they had to change all the school districts over here however my friends that live over here in leewood and like the shawnee mission east school they only saw they well they saw both Democratic and Republican mm-hmm. stuff right. We didn't see anything on the Republican side. So I'm specifically speaking of the Yoder Sharice Davids. Yeah. And in numbers game, I sat down with someone who was a big Yoder guy that morning. For I said, I mean, I'm willing to wager on this election. He's like, Oh, Yoder's never lost. And I'm like, <laughs> Yoder didn't hit up my neighborhood at all. And my neighborhood's one of very few, or one of many. I'm one of very many that have very diverse and you've got to hit up that diversity now because people are paying attention for once and they're using their numbers right so you're saying that you're experiencing a big shift everywhere you look i'm experiencing a big shift where because we've purposely put ourselves in a diverse area mm-hmm. however my friends who are over on the leewood um shawnee mission side east side they didn't experience that same thing i think well, they experienced both sides, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that the Democratic side did a really good job of getting themselves in there, mm-hmm. but it was almost assumed that these voices don't count mm-hmm. because they don't know if they ever have counted until now, right? I don't know if there was ever enough education out there about things like voting and okay. why it mattered. So I'm wondering if, like, where you see the online, the social piece, all of that playing into all of these different movements. I would say it's huge without understanding the dynamic of it in in general. I mean, it it has to be. Yeah. It's enormous. 
Yeah, because the communication, the way in which we touch each other's lives has altered so dramatically. Mm-hmm. And some of that to me is not good yeah. because there's so much of a breakdown of direct conversation and you know communication face-to-face, one-on-one versus online. But at least information is being shared if people are taking advantage of it. And that will, information is power. You mean not good as in like holding one-to-one conversations yeah. and yeah. understanding that? Yeah. Or the fact my son has to talk on his phone on FaceTime because yes. mm-hmm. he doesn't know how to hold a conversation. Yes. I understand that. That worries me. <laughs> However, I feel like if this would have happened in the 70s, you would have been a really big player in social. Right? <laughs> well. Because you were very outspoken. About you were what was going on. Disrupting yeah. what was sure. going on. Sure. Okay. So what is your passion like where do you see yourself going where do you want to end up let me ask you this too this is going to get deep you don't deep. have to answer it if you deep don't want to good you said you were married twice mm-hmm. you're no longer married was it hard for your husbands to deal with you being such a strong woman i think so like yeah. for both of them for both of them mm-hmm. did you know going into the second marriage if you already thought that about the first marriage was there that conversation well we worked together in both both my husbands i worked with both my husbands so i was deluded <laughs> yeah so you saw them a lot more thought that they knew exactly who you were yeah wow and did you ever have that conversation while married or did they oh sure married? yeah would they admit it i don't th- here's what i think is hard for men to and god this is such a generalization i'll be slaughtered for it <laughs> It is harder for most men to go to that deeper, like, tender, vulnerable spot than it is for most of us if we're, if we're using yeah. that ability and staying connected. So I think, and because I work with couples in my private practice and I watch it, I mean, I will have a woman who says to her significant other sitting in my office, I really need to know what you feel about that and he will sit there with a blank look on his face and I learned a long time ago that the answer is I don't really know (laughs) I can't it's it's hard for me to access it so if somebody can actually say it's hard for me to answer the question I can't connect with the feeling you know our feelings are pretty much on the surface. Whether we decide to share them or not is a different thing. But a lot of men have to dig a lot deeper, and I'm hoping that with younger men that is not true. So if I look at my practice today and, and talk about the guys I see who are in their 20s and 30s uh, and into their early 40s, it's a very different dynamic. Yeah. But once you get a little over that, then you're... Yeah. 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 So we had this cheat sheet at our center point uh, clinic, and it was a long list of feeling words. And so when a man in a group, we had big groups, or lots of groups, not big groups, of eight people usually, when a man could not access a feeling, he would look at the list of words until he found one oh, wow. that helped him identify. So the, it's a satisfying experience for people who don't know as much about what they feel right. to have a word that says, yes, that's it. I connect. I can feel that in my gut. So a man might have a physical feeling, but have trouble labeling it. Is there a downside to a man knowing too much of what he feels? 
I can't think of a downside for any of us about knowing what we feel. The downside is how good are we at verbalizing, expressing, and then yeah. listening, and, and listening to, to what the other person feels, and learning to have a dialogue. That's what's so hard for most people, is I'm not listening to what the other person says. I'm already formulating what I want to respond yes. with. And so I miss 50% of... 50%, is that the number? That's a That was off the top of my head. Oh, okay. but, I'm like, <laughs> but I can but see I, that. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. When did you have a radio show? Oh... I think that's why I was so nervous. Usually people are like, no, I've never been on a podcast. Like, I did radio. So you're asking these hard like age what, and what, year You don't have to tell me age and year, but, <laughs> but like where in your journey? Was it in Kansas City? Oh, was it no, here, Kansas? yeah. When, okay. I, when I ran Centerpoint, I went every day out to what was then um, the radio station. It was a CNN uh, affiliate here. Okay. Um, KFKF, I think those were the call letters. Okay. So back in the 80s. In the 80s. Okay, cool. I was just trying to figure out where in your journey. So by then, you were very comfortable just saying what you thought. And getting in trouble lots of times, yes. <laughs> On the radio. <laughs> yes. Anywhere. Yes, anywhere. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What is one thing that you regret not saying? In what context? I mean, like, is there ever a time in your entire journey that you're like, if I would have just really said what I thought... Because I'm very vocal, so I do say what I mm-hmm. think almost too much sometimes. But there's been a couple of times that I'm like, I should have narrated that better, or I should have said this and really wow. held my ground. Nothing's popping into my head. God, I hope that's a good sign, as opposed to just being forgetful. I can't no, think of awesome. anything. But there have been many times where I have not expanded on something or pushed on something. I'm sure that happened, because I've worked with so many corporations and so many I worked for uh, the National Institute for Leadership Development for 25 years, where mm-hmm. I was working with people in community colleges, and all women, and frequently women who wanted to either become a college president or move up into more powerful administrative roles in those organizations. So I think everywhere I, I have gone with women, I have said what I needed yeah. and wanted to say is the point I'm trying to make. So with those audiences, I think, no, nah, I think I say what I need to say. I have been in meetings where there were men where I was careful. Yeah. And not only just for my own well-being, but for whoever I was representing or yeah. whatever I was you know, trying to accomplish. Do you still feel like you have to do that in front of me? I don't think so. Yeah. Mm-mm. What's one thing that you spoke up too much about? This is what I'm really bad at, is saying too much too about Too much about something? That you're like, maybe I should have honed back a little bit in that situation. My good friends would say, do not ask Linda a question you don't want an answer to. <laughs> That's what my friends say about me. <laughs> well, then, then we should go to dinner together sometime <laughs> with people who need to, to hear what we have to say, and we can just reinforce one another in that sometimes bad behavior. <laughs> So no, um, you've just been very odd. So you're do you've been doing what people are now saying people are react. So everybody tells me people are reacting to you well. So you're so authentic. You sound like you've been authentic since day one. I've tried in a day before authenticity was a thing. I have tried. Yes, that's awesome. And I suppose I have suffered from that more than I'm aware of. (laughs) Yeah. 
maybe lost all kinds of opportunities or friendships, etc. But you didn't regret anything. And if you didn't have something that came to you at the top of your head, then it wasn't probably something that was supposed to be for you, right? Not in terms of something I said or should have said or wish I had nothing. Um, leaving the university was uh, an awkward time. And I was careful uh, in that in that process. The joke was that when I resigned, it reduced the number of women in administration by 50%. Because I tell you. <laughs> there, there were <laughs> have you ever been back to speak there? Um, I have been on campus for events where I have, you know, yeah, I've been on a panel or participated, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So, cool. And done some training for organizations who use space at the university. Yeah. Um, what's the number one tip? in taking your power back if you feel like you've, if you've given it away? I think the key piece is understanding to whom have I given it to and to whom am I continuing to give it to. And you, you ask yourself very important questions to assess that, and that is, who's the most difficult person for you to say no to? If you can't say no to someone that you need and want to say no to, it means that they have a lot of power. Yeah. It, and your relationship. If I can't ask for what I want, I mean, that can be anything from loan me 20 bucks for lunch to I want to ask for a raise to I want to discuss the reason I haven't gotten this promotion. If I'm afraid to ask people for those things, then those people have too much power. If I can't take negative feedback from people, they have too much power. If I can't give negative feedback to people, they have too much power. And the same with positive. If it's hard for me to either receive positive feedback, which is interesting because it is sometimes. If you, can just, if you can't just I'm say really thank you, yeah. you're screwed. So I don't think most women say thank you if you give them a compliment. Don't. They yeah. don't. They push it away typically. And then there's those women that go, no, just say thank you. And I'm trying to hang out with those women. <laughs> yes. Say that afterwards. Yes. Can I? I'm gonna. I was gonna ask you to, if I could ask you this question, but I'm just gonna ask you this sure. question. Um, and you can answer it or you cannot answer it, but I do think that there's a lot of women that would appreciate an honest answer. <laughs> do you regret not having kids? Absolutely not. I like that answer. So clear to me that I do not. I like that because I think there's a lot of people that listen to this. I know for a fact there's a lot of people that listen to this that have made that decision. Mm -hmm. But in the back of their head, they want to know if it's something they'll regret. Mm -hmm. And so for you, the answer is no. No. Nice. No. And um, a lot of people, when I talk to them informally, friends, a lot of people would say that's because you have all these substitute children. You know, they're clients. They're former clients. They're the grown children of all of your friends. Um, I just have so many meaningful connections w with so many people over so many years and with such a wide age range that yeah. my life is very full. But the other thing, and, and I think this is important for some women to understand if they do or do not. I'm also, as chatty as I obviously am, I'm obviously, less obviously, I'm pretty introverted. Oh, really? Yeah. And that, <laughs> dieting, get that from you. <laughs> introversion really technically has less to do with being verbal. It has to do with how do you recharge. When you're exhausted, do you get energy from hanging out with other people or do you want to go be by yourself? I take a lot of solitude. And that also got in the way of my primary relationships. And, you know, because I, 
um, hung out with a lot of extroverts. So a lot of women, my point is, who choose to not have children may be a little more in touch with their introvert side than they realize. And um, there's a a great book called The Introvert Advantage by a psychologist named Marnie Laney, and one of the chapters is titled, Are the Kids in Bed Yet? You know, it's like the, the, <laughs> introvert, like the yeah. introvert needs time, I need space. You know, no, I, I hope I didn't answer that too quickly because there's just no sense of regret about that. No, I, I think, think if I, I think if I could have a kid who was 30 and I didn't have to go through childbirth, <laughs> childbirth or, or, or rearing, them. <laughs> yes, I would be fine to have a 30 yeah. year old or you know 40 year old kid. But I, I do think that's. The, don't you feel like it's a place that we're still a little judgy on with people, with women? Um, I think we're getting better. But the I reason hope I hope so. That, yeah. I hope that we are not judging. But see, that's another role definition issue that we yeah. have trouble. It's like shackles. You know, can you be who you want to be without being judged by the way systems define women? Yeah. We define women as wives and mothers. So even for those people who live together without being married, in my my second primary relationship, we lived together for eight years and got married for after that, which was probably the reason it didn't work. <laughs> I know so many couples that live long together, and then the minute they get married, it's over. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate you so much for coming on. Thank you. Any last-minute things you want to say? No, but if, if anybody really wants to understand the whole power issue and understand how you are hard on yourselves, you know, I... I would encourage people to go to my blog on my website. Can I would, you give the address? Sure. It's just drlindaelmore.com, D-R-L-I-N-D-A-L-M-O-O-R-E.com. And, and we'll link it, too. Yeah, and my books. I do, I mean, everybody who's written a book wants to sell a book. Yeah. Uh, mine is more about, I think the information is actually helpful. Yes. And so I would love for and more people. And I just people. started them, so I would absolutely agree. Okay, thank you. Good. Absolutely. We'll link it so you guys can get there. And uh, that is it for this week's Cocktail Hour. Do you want to hear from your favorite local businesswoman? Do you know a woman in business who is shaking shit up? Send your recommendations to heygirl at cocktailhourpodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and share our podcast with your friends. We share our stories to motivate and inspire you. So spread the love around. Until next time, I'm Erin Folk. Keep your class and your glass raised, and we'll see you at the next Cocktail Hour. Thanks, Dr. Moore. Thank you.